right, so we're still in lesson seven, uh, which is the last lesson in Revelation. It's going to take us through the end of the book. Um, and tonight we're finishing chapter 20, which leaves just two chapters after this. And those are all about the eternal state. Uh, this will conclude everything that scripture has to say about the millennial kingdom, uh, the kingdom which uh, finishes all of God's purposes with this present creation so that this creation can uh, pass away. Ultimately, when something reaches its conclusion, reaches its goal, uh, it's over. We see this in the Mosaic law when it reaches its goal in the righteousness of Christ. Um, it was disabled for the rule of life for believers. And so the same thing holds true for the creation. Uh, once it reaches its goal, God has a different thing in store. That different thing has an eternal purpose, so it will not disappear, and that's to spend eternity uh, in fellowship with God. Um, so that's what we're headed towards here, and there's one last judgment uh, to get to, because God has to finally put away all unrighteousness uh, and everything that is opposed to him and his will, uh, which would be uh, all the works of Satan. We know in uh, 1 John, uh, John tells us that Jesus came for the purpose of destroying all the works of Satan. And we see that finished finally at the end of Revelation chapter 20. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said that the last enemy to be conquered will be death itself. Um, and so that is what is being finished. Uh, here in Revelation chapter 20. And this is the great white throne judgment. Uh, many theological systems try to lump all of the judgments together into this one um, judgment, but as uh, hopefully will become clear tonight, this is not the great judgment. This is, uh, this is just the last judgment. Uh, we've had the privilege through Revelation to look at all of the judgments that are future the judgment of the church that occurs at the time of the rapture, the judgment of the believers left alive at the end of the tribulation period, some to enter into the kingdom if um, if they had put their trust in Jesus the Messiah, and others who uh, go to outer darkness uh, because they did not put their faith in Jesus Messiah. They are all resurrected uh, for this final judgment um, so that they can be judged um, on the basis of their works, uh, but apart from the righteousness of Christ, which is a terrifying thing. So we begin with the judge in uh, chapter 20, verse 11. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, for who, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. So here he is looking in another vision, and he sees uh, someone sitting on this great white throne. Now, it's uh, not necessarily easy to distinguish which person of the Godhead is on this throne. And I think John leaves it ambiguous. Um, John is very much a Trinitarian writer. Um, he makes clear the distinctions between the Trinity uh, in his writings. But um, he is also the most likely to blur and blend these persons of the Trinity, um, just as sometimes he makes these clear distinctions at other times, he speaks of them as if they are uh, one. So in John's writing, we get the clearest picture of uh, three persons in one. And this may be a case in which uh, there are one or two persons of the Godhead, at least, if not all three involved. Uh, and John may be speaking of them just singularly as the Godhead. But in John 5, 21, uh, we see some of this um, interaction between God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son in terms of judgment and Jesus' responsibilities in judgment. So in chapter 5, verse 21 of the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus answering the Pharisees when the Pharisees complained that Jesus was equating himself with God. This was part of Jesus' answer. Uh, he said, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So we see two distinct judgments here. Uh, we actually saw, I don't know if you caught this, but there is um, those who are dead uh, uh, in the second half of, or in uh, First John, uh, Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 25 says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Uh, he is not speaking of physical death here. He's speaking of spiritually dead, the same kind that we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, uh, where we see that we were dead in our trespasses previously because uh, we were uh, sharing the same nature of the children of destruction because we were children of destruction until Christ came and gave us his life. Um, but we have a different death spoken of here in verse 28, um, and he distinguishes it this way. He says, an hour is coming in which all who are in tombs will hear the voice and will come forth. Uh, this doesn't say the hour is coming and now is like the previous one, but this is speaking of a future resurrection in which all who are in the tombs being all dead uh, are going to be resurrected um, and they will pass into judgment. And that judgment, um, some will, will, one will be a judgment to life, the other will or resurrection to life, and the other will be a resurrection to judgment. Uh, in verse 30, then we see, I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. So God has given Jesus the right and the prerogative to judge uh, based on his own righteousness in completing or in fulfilling the will of God uh, in his duty here on earth, which was uh, to obediently provide salvation for all men. And so based on someone's uh, response to that gift, uh, Jesus has the right to judge and to distinguish those who have received him and those who have not. In Ephesians 1.19, uh, we see Christ's present um, session is on the throne of God, sharing the throne with him. In Ephesians 1.19, these are in accordance with the workings of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So this is speaking of the same thing that we see in uh, Philippians chapter 2, where Christ, because of his obedience to the cross, um, in his humility and his um, incarnation, God elevated him and raised him above all names. He had for a time put him below the angels, uh, we see in the book of Hebrews, but has now elevated him high above um, all rule and authority and power. And so that's where he presently is. And he interacts with God continually on our behalf. First uh, John 2, 2 says he is our, or 2, 1 and 2 says he's our advocate. He's just and righteous um, to argue our case before God because his blood covers our sins because we've received him through faith. Um, and so he's presently a judge over us, um, but a judge on our behalf. And he argues our case before God, but he is the uh, prosecuting attorney before those who have refused um, his gift. We see that Christ himself is the one who sits on the throne of judgment over all who are his, that the Father has given him, uh, that is um, us in the church. When we are judged, when we stand before him to be judged uh, for reward, uh, he's the one 
enacting judgment. Second Corinthians 5.10 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Deeds in the body, in the body uh, specifies this to being just a church age judgment. Uh, this is just for people in the church. Uh, those not in the church are not part of the body of Christ. And so uh, we're judged based on our deeds uh, for reward, whereas those who are judged uh, at this great white throne judgment, we're going to see are, will be judged for degree of torment uh, in eternity apart from God. Now we want to look at the location that he's sitting. Um, he is sitting on a throne, and he's sitting on a throne that is apart from this creation. Um, but it looks a little different than the throne we've uh, encountered so far. And the first thing we'll look at is the absence of the rainbow. Whenever we see God's throne, such as in Ezekiel um, and here again in Revelation, there is the presence of his throne because although he's coming in judgment, there's a period of grace that comes before it. And this rainbow always speaks of God's long suffering and grace towards mankind. But now the rainbow is gone. Uh, uh, Revelation 20:11 again says, "Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it." Uh, it's a very simple description of this throne. Revelation 4, 2 through 3, I think we see the same throne, uh, but it looks a little different. Uh, the uh, present activity of God from that throne is different. It's still a time, even in those last seven years of world history, of grace, where grace is being offered to unbelievers. Revelation uh, chapter 4, verse 2 says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. So that rainbow is absent, and that's consistent with uh, what's going on at this judgment. Grace is no longer being offered. Grace has been spurned um, in all the opportunities that it was, uh, that it was offered to the unbeliever. Um, the reason grace is spurned is because the redemption has been refused. We also see no presence of the holy sacrifice of Christ at this um, at this throne, and this is really a uh, bookend to the book of Revelation, where it began with the throne where grace was being offered, but judgment was swiftly coming, um, and the sacrifice of Christ was present because many would still come to uh, God through Him. Christ purchased uh, men from every nation. Uh, in fact, He. He purchased the entire world with his blood. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6 says, I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So the location is also important here. Um, I don't know how many months back, more than almost two years now, uh, we saw this lamb standing as if slain in Revelation chapter 5, and we saw that he is standing between God the Father on the throne and all those who are redeemed before him, the, uh, the 24 elders, for example. Uh, he is the sacrifice that was offered for the redemption of the world. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, moving forward a little, we see why they, are, why they worship him. Uh, it says, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. So at the previous throne or the throne previously, we saw both grace and redemption um, as the most prominent images uh, surrounding the throne. Here, that has been replaced with simple white light righteousness. Uh, we see this back in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. We see God's throne of righteousness and God's righteousness shining through at his throne. Uh, Daniel, in his vision, says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow. 
and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. In Psalm 97, one through four, we get a similar picture. It's different, but uh, the, the idea here is still the same. Psalm 97, verses one through four, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And that idea of righteousness and justice is what we are looking at here. Uh, fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. Another verse which we could cite that I didn't bring in here is First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, that um, says that God dwells in unapproachable uh, light. First John 5, or chapter 1, verse 5, uh, we see at the very beginning of John's epistle where he's going to be talking about uh, the, well, about spiritual maturity, growing up in the body of Christ. He places the standard first and foremost in the perfect righteousness of God and shows that God is perfectly righteous. There's no darkness in him at all. He writes, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So these are uh, those standing before this throne, uh, not only refused the fellowship, they in fact never got to the point of fellowship because they never got to the point of salvation. Uh, they never received the blood of Christ at all. And so grace has come to an end and we see only God's righteousness and justice. Revelation 4.4 4, uh, says, Around the throne there were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, and they were clothed in white garments, and golden crowns were on their heads. These white garments that they had, this is their righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, not the righteousness of their own. And these golden crowns were the rewards that they earned while walking in that righteousness. Isaiah 61.10, we see that these, uh, these garments of righteousness did not come from believers, but it was given to them. Uh, this is the idea of imputed righteousness. Uh, just like we have imputed sin from uh, Adam having shared in his nature, we have imputed righteousness from Christ sharing in his nature. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Now, in Hebrew poetry, they don't rhyme with sound. They rhyme with ideas. Uh, the idea here is that this is two sides of the same coin, being clothed with a garment of salvation and being wrapped with a robe of righteousness. See, it's not the presence of our sins that sends us to hell. It's the absence of Christ's righteousness, and we receive his righteousness by grace through faith. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So that is the great white throne upon which the judge, who is righteous to judge and must bring this judgment in order to be uh, consistent with his own nature of um, of justice, here he has to judge, uh, finally, all things at the time that grace is concluded. And interestingly, then, uh, about this, the, well, all of creation is fleeing from the presence of the one on the throne, not necessarily the throne itself, but the one on the throne. So it says, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. Now, up until now, we've seen heaven and earth, heaven and earth, heaven and earth, and almost entirely throughout scripture, we see heaven and earth. Uh, this is probably John's rhetorical way of uh, capping off creation, where he reverses it. So you've got the same thing. Looking back, it's like a cap, uh, a linguistic cap that closes it off. He's reversing this to basically tie a bow on it. Uh, from whose presence heaven and earth fled away. Uh, this is the idea of actually departing, um, fleeing 
disappearing. Not because, as we don't see here, not because it's burning up, but because there's no place found for it anymore. It is gone. It's not being refined. It's not being refurbished. Um, it's not like the flood or like the flames that entered into the millennial kingdom. This is an absolute dispersal of the entire creation because it has been completed. There is no more purpose for it. Uh, and God is going to make all things new. Isaiah 51, 6 says, lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath. For the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not wane. These are things that are eternal, the things of God, which do not share in this creation, uh, but are uh, transcendent to it. Those things are not ours unless we have a part in him, and we only have a part in him through Jesus Christ. So again, it is not our sins that keep us out of heaven. It is the lack of his righteousness uh, that keep us out. And so having received righteousness through faith, through that salvation, which is forever, and that righteousness that does not wane, we enter into the eternal together with him. Uh, and have our source newly in him rather than in this world that perishes. Revelation 21, verse 1, which we'll look at next week, says, Then I saw a new earth and a new, or new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. This idea is, uh, this uh, word for new means brand new. There's there's two different words for new. Um, one is um, new as in new to me, and one is brand new as in freshly created. And this is the idea of brand new, freshly created. Now, this verse in almost every commentary that I read these last few days was used to uh, discuss what's going on here in Revelation chapter 20. The end of chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, I don't think it actually correlates um, to this. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse, uh, verses 5 through 7 says, By the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, uh, speaking of the original creation, and then through which the world at that time, being the, the world before the flood, was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, this fire that's going to wipe the earth clean parallels the flood. The flood and the flames uh, split the three different civilizations of this present creation, the pre-flood, the post-flood, and then the kingdom civilizations. Uh, this fire refinement is going to be uh, not a complete dissipation of this creation, but a refinement of it, uh, restoring it to its Edenic state, uh, the state that it was in in Eden, burning up all the, the uh, evil works of this age to bring in the kingdom age. And why I say that is because of how it's described a little further in uh, verses 10 through 13, and then also a few other um, reasons such as the author being Peter, who is the apostle to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. And he was writing to a group of Jews who were in the diaspora uh, in Babylon. He's writing to these who were still in that uh, area of exile because the Messiah had come, he had been rejected, and he is telling them uh, that God is not forsaking his promises to you of a kingdom. So he's writing to a Jewish audience about the results of the rejection of the Messiah and encouraging them to live well in this age because that kingdom age is still coming. And so he says in 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, 
and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, this is the other kind of new heaven and new earth, new to me. Uh, this is a refurbishment of this present creation um, so that he can bring in his kingdom of righteousness. Because as we see in Psalm 2 and the other Psalms that we looked at when we were looking at the character of the millennial kingdom, the overarching promise was a kingdom of righteousness in which God's righteousness and not man's would be predominant. Now, of course, that's all that's going to remain in the new heavens and new earth creation at the end of chapter 20. Uh, but that was unrevealed until this time. Um, you could see that the kingdom had at least a period of transition um, at its end. They didn't know how long until the book of Revelation. They didn't know it would be a period of 1,000 years. Um, but the eternal state, which occurs after the kingdom, there is no mention of that anywhere in Old Testament prophecy. It's completely new revelation. Uh, whenever they were talking about uh, transitions between ages, and uh, it was always within this present creation. So uh, I would give Second Peter 3 a most likely referring to the transition between today's age and the millennial kingdom. Uh, I'm not as dogmatic about that as other passages, but um, I think this passage either needs, I think it needs some more work and some more critical consideration um, concerning Revelation chapter 20. But that's where I'm at right now with this passage. I don't think it refers to the same judgment, even though it uses some similar language. Uh, I don't think it refers to the same judgment as the great white throne judgment. And the reason uh, for this judgment, the reason for this creation being able to finally pass away completely, is that its purpose has been fulfilled. God cannot let this creation pass away until his purpose has been fulfilled in it. Otherwise, he has been unsuccessful in it. Um, so in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, we've got just 27 and 28 on the screen. God gives his purpose first among the Godhead, he speaks in his uh, triune form to the other members of the Godhead and states his purpose for man. And then in, uh, in uh, verse 28, we see him actually communicating that purpose to mankind. And so that's his purpose. That's his stated agenda. And it is not successful with Adam because Adam lacks the righteousness of God. He lacks the righteousness of Christ. He was in unconfirmed holiness. And so Jesus, who was created in the image of God and is the perfect image of God, as we see in uh, Colossians 1 and uh, Hebrews 1, he is that perfect image. God actually created man in his image so that Jesus could one day inhabit the body of a man and uh, fulfill God's creative purposes, because his creative purposes is to glorify uh, the Son. And so Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, you'll remember from last week and the previous weeks, that was not fulfilled until the millennial kingdom, where we saw uh, so many people present on this earth, this fulfillment of the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So many people that uh, even those who rebelled against God, which I don't think will be in the majority uh, in the millennial kingdom, it said that even those were like the sand of the sea. Uh, it will be an incredibly, massively high population uh, during the millennial kingdom. And they were also told to subdue the creation and to rule over it. And that is what Jesus Christ will do uh, in the millennial kingdom. So with that purpose being complete, there is no reason to continue with this creation. Uh, when something has a purpose and that purpose is fulfilled and that purpose is not eternal, uh, that becomes the end of the thing. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the uh, session this evening. And so God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And that new heaven and new earth have not a temporary um, 
purpose, but an eternal purpose, which we'll start looking at next week, is eternal fellowship together with God in the presence of God. Uh, and the other side of that being the eternal um, eternal separation of those who refused um, to receive the gift of God, uh, that is salvation in Jesus Christ. So now we do see these uh, dead ones standing before the throne. And uh, that might seem inconsequential, but um, there is actually a resurrection that occurs uh, between verses 10 and verse 11, or sometime during verse 11 in the background. What John sees is the dead, and he sees the great and the small, which is a merism to say, uh, big or little, it doesn't matter, everything in between. Uh, whatever was dead at this point, he sees standing before the throne. That's important because everything that is not dead at this point uh, has either been resurrected into eternal life or has survived the millennial kingdom war at the end of the kingdom uh, because they were believers. Uh, they had put their trust in Jesus, the Messiah. And so everything that's dead at this point is in unbelief and died in unbelief. Um, so everything great and small standing before the throne. So yes, they are dead, but they are standing. They have been resurrected, that resurrection to uh, judgment, not resurrection to life that we saw back here in John 5, 28, when Jesus says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Daniel 12 uh, verses 1 through 2 speaks of the same uh, split in judgments or in uh, resurrections. It says, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, speaking of the tribulation. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found in the book, uh, being the book of life, will be rescued. Those who are believers in Israel at the time of the tribulation, the end of the tribulation will be rescued. But many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Uh, these to everlasting life. So those whose name are in the book of life, and many, not all, uh, of those who are part of the uh, congregation of Israel, because not all of Israel were believers, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. This is going to be a big resurrection uh, unto everlasting life because they put their trust in the coming Messiah. But others, um, by context here, those who don't awake at the time of the millennial kingdom to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Revelation chapter 20 verses 5 through 6 that we looked at about a month ago says the rest of the dead uh, being not those who were resurrected before the millennial kingdom. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Um, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection, resurrection in accordance with Christ's resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, uh, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. See, for the believer, uh, he has... Uh, one or zero deaths to look forward to. There will be the passing away of his body, but it will be either by natural death or translation. Uh, translation being the rapture, where his present body is replaced with a resurrection body or a rapture body, a glorified body, um, however you want to classify it, um, that will be the same kind of body as those who receive a resurrection body. They won't have experienced even the first death However, uh, there is a second death, and this is only for unbelievers because a believer can die once physically, but he can't die again. A, uh, an unbeliever dies once physically. He is resurrected into an eternal resurrection body, but he passes into the next judgment and dies eternally, just as we live eternally, a state of continual destruction. Uh, <clears throat> I don't have it in here. Um, I don't know if you guys have Bibles with you, but I think this verse is worth going to. Uh, it's John, and actually, let me share that screen with you. 
the book of John, uh, chapter 11, I think around verse 50. Or 25, sorry. So Jesus speaking to Martha um, just after Lazarus has died. He is consoling her and also telling her that he is about to resuscitate the body of Lazarus. He's not going to give him a resurrection body, this resurrection that he's talking to. Uh, Martha knows there's a coming resurrection in which he'll be given a resurrection body. Jesus is clarifying that that's not the resurrection he's talking about, uh, but that he's going to actually resurrect him on that day in a slightly different sense. It's going to be a return to his mortal body, not a um, not a new entry into his eternal resurrection body. But here in verse 25, it says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So for us, or perhaps for us, if we're not the resurrection uh, or the uh, rapture generation, which Lord willing, I hope we are, uh, it says those who believe in me will live even if he dies. Uh, so I think of, well, uh, anyone who we know who is a believer who has died, um, they only have one death to undergo. They will never die again because they have had that life that is present in them and their new nature is now perfected in Christ. Uh, they are now uh, present with him, not facing any sort of death ever again in the future. This is what he means in verse 25. But in verse 26, he says, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. This idea of living without the presence of death, I think this is actually Jesus' first mention of the rapture. Uh, most people put it in John 14, and I don't think this is a mention of it, but it's only consistent with the rapture. Um, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Um, in other words, life that results in a single death has no death left to look forward to. And for some, uh, life uh, will have no end. It will only have a translation into the perfection of that life at the rapture. But for all of the others, those who die apart from Christ, there are two deaths uh, to look forward to. And uh, that's not a happy thing. Okay, going back here to Revelation chapter 20. We have these two different kinds of resurrections. Um, we have the earlier resurrection and the later resurrection, or the first kind of resurrection and the second kind. Uh, the first resurrection order is the resurrection in accordance with Christ's life. Uh, we saw this back in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. It says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Uh, this first resurrection is, uh, the, you could say, the first kind. Uh, protos, the Greek word there, does mean better translated earlier, um, the first in order. Um, but we could say it's, it's an order as in a type. Uh, Christ is resurrected in that order. The church is resurrected in that order. The two witnesses in the mid middle of the tribulation. The Old Testament saints, such as were promised to Daniel that some would awake. Um, into their reward, and then the tribulation martyrs that we saw in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. All of these have put their faith in Jesus Christ. They've received his righteousness, and they are resurrected in the same order as him, even if not at the same time. In fact, none were resurrected together with him in, this, in receiving resurrection bodies, unless uh, Matthew uh, 27 53, I think it is, unless those were resurrected and uh, went into heaven together with Christ already. Um, scripture is silent on that. Uh, but Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, which we're uh, soon moving towards here in the text, says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That second death is the second resurrection. We've got a resurrection to life, the life of Christ and the resurrection to death, the death of the false messiah. If you remember, the false messiah is going to be slain in his physical body uh, by Jesus when he comes to the earth, and then he will be resurrected, the first fruits of the resurrection 
to death because he is thrown into uh, the lake of fire alive. Uh, this false messiah uh, is the culmination of Satan's unrighteousness and the disobedience and the rebellion of mankind against God. Uh, all of the wicked of all generations are then resurrected in this same order, uh, this order of rebellion. Um, it's a resurrection to judgment, as Jesus says in 1 John 5, 29. Um, and it's the judgment that we are looking at here at the great white throne. Now, a few words do need to be said about the standard by which they're judged. Whenever we see works um, uh, present in a judgment, uh, we want to be clear to, uh, we want to clarify what role they have in the standard. And Revelation chapter 20, once you identify the elements within it, uh, it couldn't be clearer that the judgment for salvation or damnation um, has nothing to do with these works. Um, but the works are going to factor in, um, so we will see how those work. Here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, part A, we see that, uh, or I guess this is, yeah, part B almost, that we see the books were opened, um, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Uh, now, this is um, another book in distinction from the books that were opened. Um, this book of life is going to have a role, and these books are going to have a role, not the same role, though. Uh, God is going to check against the book of life to make sure no one is there that shouldn't be there, not because there's a possibility of him making a mistake, but because all of this is a demonstration and a display of his righteousness, where all who are watching will be able to see that not one whose blood Jesus Christ covered will enter into this death, um, but all who are not will enter into it. And then even those who are uh, entering into eternal damnation, even those will be judged by their degree of rebellion against God. Um, so it's not just a a uh, homogenous pit where everyone's tortured equally. Uh, based on their rebellion against God, they will receive different degrees of torment. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, the end of this verse um, says, the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Uh, it's wrong to take the books plural here to refer to both the books earlier and the book of life. John uses this plural as a distinct uh, as a distinguishing tool in his language. Books and the book of life are different. Uh, Isaiah 64, 6 uh, says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. These deeds that are written in these books um, that they're judged by. It's not a judgment of, well, you're going to hell, but you were pretty good in your life, um, so your torment isn't going to be as bad. Um, absolutely everything that is done apart from God is in rebellion against God. Uh, doesn't matter how good it is by human standards, the standard of righteousness is to do things in dependence on God's power and not man's. To do anything in man's power and not God's, will not factor in in the Christian life to, uh, to reward, and it will not factor into the unbeliever's life in helping them to make the torment not as bad. The deeds that are written in here are degrees of unrighteousness, not degrees of righteousness. It is impossible to do anything righteous apart from God, and everything that these unbelievers have done at any time in their lives has been apart from God because they have never received the righteousness of Christ. So these aren't recorded good deeds in these books. This is their record of all of their sins. It's not the records of, here's some good things you did, and here's the bad things you did. Every single thing that is written in these books is accounted against them. The difference is going to be how many things and to what degree was it against him. Um, now, at this point, it is probably... Uh, important to look at the unnecessary uh, or the uh, unnecessariness, if that is a word, of any single person standing before this throne. It is absolutely unnecessary that anyone be there, but we know that people will. 
And we know that many people will. Uh, John 3, 17 through 18, uh, Jesus says, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is the purpose for Jesus to come, was to provide salvation. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. John 16, 8 through 11, when Jesus tells his disciples that he is going away, but that is good for now because the Holy Spirit is going to come to them, uh, tells them not only how the Holy Spirit is going to help them in their spiritual walk, but he also tells them how the Holy Spirit is going to interact with the unbeliever because Jesus is no longer going to be present on this earth. Uh, the Holy Spirit is going to come in his place to provoke unbelievers towards faith. In fact, at some point in everyone's lives, uh, even in the believers, the Holy Spirit exercised this ministry towards them before they believed. The Holy Spirit was convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. For all who believe today, this ministry towards them was received with positive volition. For everyone who has not believed at this point, this conviction has occurred and is occurring but until now, it has been met with negative volition. They have refused this ministry of the Holy Spirit towards them. So Jesus says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, under those, he explains what each of these are. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. There is no sin that keeps someone out of heaven except the sin of unbelief. Now, I think we've talked about this before. That is not the unforgivable sin because man can be forgiven for his unbelief. Someone who changes from unbelief to belief is someone who has repented. Metanoia, the Greek word for repent, means to change your mind, to move from unbelief to belief. This um, sin of unbelief, though, if someone dies in unbelief, continuing to reject God, that moment is when grace ends, not when that sin has not been paid for any longer, but when grace for the person to receive the covering for that sin has ended. And so um, the sin of unbelief is the only thing that keeps anyone from or that, uh, that puts anyone before this throne, because belief is the only thing that puts your name in the book of life. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. Faith is uh, the conduit through which God's saving power is transferred to us, and that's in his grace, and on no other standard than his grace, uh, by the mechanism of Christ's blood when we receive it by faith. So the Holy Spirit is concerning the world about this sin that is standing between them and receiving the gift of Christ, uh, that they do not believe in him concerning righteousness because i go to the father and you no longer see me jesus is the standard of righteousness which condemns every single person standing before that great white throne and it is jesus righteousness his perfect righteousness and the exact um, replication of god's righteousness it is god's righteousness when that is imputed to us that is the only thing that transfers us into his kingdom of righteousness we have to receive his righteousness we cannot muster it ourselves that is uh, what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 61, all of the deeds of the righteous or all of the righteous deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. Anything we try to do in our own self-righteousness is against the Lord, not for him. And the last conviction here is concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. This is in the perfect tense. It is past tense already. It is a finished product in the past with present results. And now, when you see this, that the ruler of this world has been judged, he's not talking about the cross. He's talking all the way back at the beginning of the world, basically. Uh, he's going all the way back to Genesis 3, 14 and 15, when God pronounced judgment against the serpent for, uh, for introducing sin into humanity, which Christ would need to come and pay for on the cross. Satan was judged at that moment. Uh, in fact, the very promise of a coming seed 
the coming Messiah, was part of the judgment on the serpent. This wasn't a word spoken in judgment against humanity, but against the serpent. This judgment has already occurred. The ruler of this world, Satan, has already been judged. Uh, and the rest of history is just the process of demonstrating that to mankind and finalizing that in the blood of Christ. Romans 5, 8 then says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, the effectiveness of Christ's blood does not begin the moment we believe in him. Our sins aren't paid for at the moment of salvation. Our sins are already paid for. And the implication of that is, Every single unbeliever alive today and through all of history, their sins are also paid for, paid in full, absolutely complete. That is why it is not their sin that is keeping them from heaven. It is the lack of Christ's righteousness. It is not receiving him through faith. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For since while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 1 John 2, 1 through 2 teaches the same doctrine of unlimited atonement. It says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation, meaning he absorbed the wrath of God uh, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the entire world. So every single person who stands before this great white throne upon which uh, Jesus is present, upon which Jesus judges the world, Jesus paid for the sins of that person. He died and covered that sin already, but they did not receive it. And so they are guilty of the sin of unbelief, uh, that sin that keeps them from receiving that grace. Because hell what they are looking forward to was not made for them. Jesus came for the purpose of salvation and by necessity also has to provide judgment because that salvation was refused. Matthew 25, 4, Jesus speaking of hell says, um, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire. And his description of that eternal fire is, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It was not prepared for mankind. Mankind chose to go there because they aligned themselves with the ruler of this world who has been judged already. Matthew 25, 46 says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It is the presence of Christ's righteousness uh, that produces eternal life in the believer. Revelation 3, 5, you'll remember, says, he who overcomes, speaking of all believers, will thus be clothed in white garments. These white garments, again, are the righteousness of Christ put on us at salvation. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. All who are born have had their sins paid for by Christ. But unless righteousness is added to that through faith in Christ, the name that is written in that book of life is erased. But we have the guarantee that having received the righteousness of Christ through faith, our name is permanently sealed in this book of life. I like to think of it as all the names being written in blood in this book. And when we believe we receive this righteousness, that righteousness covers over the top of our names like tape. No matter what you use to erase it, it's not erasing it because Christ's righteousness is covering over that payment. That's just a mental image, not necessarily a statement of doctrine. 1 John 5.5, 5, just to remind us of what the overcomer is, um, who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, Jesus was able to cover the sins of every single man because he is more than just a man, he is God himself, and he's able to pay for the sins of man and not uh, for the sins of man because he himself is a man. His blood uh, is uh, the right type to cover the sins of man, um, but it's bigger. It's the perfect blood type uh, because it is from God, and uh, Jesus is the only sacrifice that could have covered all of mankind. 
Isaiah 65, 6 says, behold, it is written before me. I will not keep silent, but I will repay. Isaiah um, is consistent. In fact, all these Old Testament prophets are consistent with this idea of a record of rebellion against God. God keeps a record so that in his judgment, he can meet out judgment fairly. Uh, this is an instance in which he is keeping a record against Israel of their uh, rebellion against him. He writes, behold, it is written before me. I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom both their iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord. So you'll remember from our study of the judgment, um, the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, this judgment of all those who are in the body of Christ destined for eternal glory in heaven. When we pass from this life into that next, we are judged based on uh, our faithfulness to God, our dependence on him. Uh, and we, are, we receive various degrees of reward and rulership in the kingdom uh, based on this. And these, this isn't based on the quantity or even the quality of the good things that we do, but the things that we do while resting in the power of God through the Holy Spirit on the basis of Christ's finished work. This is when we are walking in fellowship with God. That is, uh, that is fruit that, is, uh, that receives reward. But for those who have their destiny in the lake of fire, their judgment is for degrees of torment based on rebellion against God. So you've got this parallel, not of um, in heaven, we all start at zero. And based on our rewards, we can work our way up. And in heaven, we all start or in uh, hell, they all start at um, zero torment and work their way up. Uh, the idea is uh, like a negative corollary in heaven working our way up um, to or through reward by faith rest in, uh, in the finished work of Christ and in hell, greater degrees of torment for those who have um, rebelled against God to greater degrees. Revelation 20, 12, uh, part B says, the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. No mention of the book of life here. Uh, this judgment is a judgment to uh, degree of torment because every single person standing before this throne is not in the book of life. Uh, and this was that other book of life. Until now, um, all of these dead have been stored somewhere. Uh, when Christ uh, was resurrected or during the time that Christ was uh, in the grave, uh, we learn from, I, I think it was Second Peter, um, that he was preaching to the spirits uh, in prison, the spirits down in Sheol. He descended into the paradise section of Sheol to empty it out um, until Christ paid the price for the sin of mankind. Uh, all believers who died in him went into what was called Abraham's bosom in the Old Testament, called Sheol um, also, which was paradise. It was a place of resting uh, for the coming of the promised seed in which they had all put their faith. Uh, but on the other side of that great divide was uh, Hades, where, uh, for example, we see the... Uh, the rich man and Lazarus, where one is in the paradise side, there's a great divide between them. And uh, the rich man is in the Sheol side, where he is parched and wanting water. He's wanting to uh, alert his living family members to the torment that he is experiencing on the wrong side of Sheol. Um, while the rich or the, while Lazarus, who suffered in this life, uh, was at rest uh, in Sheol. Well, when Christ uh, died and made that payment, those who are in Sheol returned to heaven with him because at death, they would be present with Christ. And from now on, everyone who dies is present with him. The only ones left then are those on the uh, Hades side of Sheol. 
paradise has been emptied and no one enters into it anymore. It has served its purpose in waiting for the redemption to be made. So um, Hades, uh, down on the wrong side of Sheol, is going to be emptied out, as well as the sea and smack dab in the middle, we see that death as well. So here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 13, it says, the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Now, this may have been answering a cultural question, um, especially since in this, uh, this day and age, and John having come from a Semitic background, um, a Hebrew background, not quite as sure about um, the rest of the churches to whom he's writing here. Uh, but they were, they didn't cremate bodies, they didn't burn bodies, they buried bodies, they didn't scatter bodies in, um, in the sea, because Israel especially had the expectation of being resurrected into the land for the millennial kingdom. So, for example, in Genesis, we get, um, uh, we get Jacob, who died in Egypt, but wanted his bones buried in the promised land. Uh, this idea kind of continued throughout Judaism, and it was present in other cultures as well. Um, to die in the sea was to be lost in life and in death. Uh, and so here, John is answering that question that no one's escaping this judgment. Um, even those who people believed couldn't be resurrected or uh, disappeared from all existence because they were lost to the sea and not to the grave, uh, even those would be brought before the throne uh, for judgment. And then we see that death and Hades as well, which is the state and the place, uh, they give up their dead. Uh, Hades, again, being the wrong side of Sheol, death being the state in which the unbeliever is in. Um, they are given up from death because they are given resurrection uh, bodies. Again, it's not resurrection to life. Uh, life is presence together with God, um, not separation from him. That's biblically speaking, the definition of life is presence uh, and death is separation. Uh, so we have death and Hades giving up the dead, which were in them. They were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Everyone who was dead at that time was an unbeliever or will be an unbeliever, and they will be judged based on their rebellion against God. And this is the second death, as we've seen. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Now, when you kill death and you kill the location of uh, death, everything is consumed and disappearing. This is really the end. He's closing up death altogether. Nothing after this will ever die again. Revelation 26 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection, for the, over these the second death has no power. Um, if they had put their faith in Christ, they would be part of the first resurrection, and that is the only condition. And um, this second death would have had no power over them. Uh, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, 1 Corinthians 15.22 is probably speaking of the same uh, conclusion or capstone on uh, this world's history of death. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that those who are Christ's that is coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put his enemies under his foot. And then verse 26 says, the last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted, or he is accepted, who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to himself so that God may be all in all. This is the ultimate final glorification of the son when he executes judgment uh, and when death itself is finally put away, the first enemy that man faced, um, the first uh, opponent to creation, to God's creation of life was the destruction of that life. 
and God has even put that away so that the eternal state will have no experience of death at all whatsoever. Revelation 20 verse 15 concludes this section and this chapter by saying, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that one condition that through faith um, their name remain in the book of life because Christ has paid for their sin and purchased their life, uh, but they continued in rebellion against him. He is thrown into the lake of fire. Thank you.